the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon and welcome. Yes, indeed he is. And here to say, great to have you with us for another edition of Lifeline. We uh, spend this time together every Monday through Friday from 5 until 7 p.m. addressing issues that impact your life and your world. We start off today's program, i just looking at the news and chortling to myself. Um, Julian Assange has finally been extracted from the Ecuadorian embassy. And I'm trying to put together the connection. So as you're being pulled out, you've been there in hiding for seven years, and you know that clearly you're going to be facing charges in two, maybe three countries, but Sweden's got a bid on this thing for uh, extradition charges related to uh, accusations of rape, and of course the whole espionage thing, both in the United States and in Great Britain. And so as you're heading out the door, the one thing is the police are dragging you bodily from the embassy is you're sure to grab your copy of Gore Vidal's last book. See him clutching a copy of a Gore Vidal book on the way out the door? I'm, I'm sorry. Can't make the connection, and I probably am and glad that I can't. All right. Let's get down to cases, shall we? Pretty jam-packed program for you today. A little bit later on, Leslie Leland Fields is going to join us. She is a best-selling author. She's got a lot of books to her credit. The most recent one she serves as the editor of, and it's an interesting book um, because it sort of helps to reset, refire, recharge women who have reached midlife. The book is called The Wonder Years, 40 Women Over 40 on Aging, Faith, Beauty, Strength, all of it. And um, I think it'll be an interesting, uh, what's the old adage, that um, uh, 65 is the new um, 40, something like that. The new 40 must be the, the new 20. So uh, we'll talk a bit with Leslie about um, the people that helped contribute to this book and many of the insights that they offer. Get to that coming up a little bit later on. The, um, the month here of April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month. And, of course, this has been in the news in an increasing basis. And we all know the names, the accusations, whether you're talking about Bill Cosby or Harvey Weinstein, um, the recent and ongoing um, controversy within the Roman Catholic Church on the same topic. You look at this, and, and oftentimes we're compelled as outsiders looking in to say, why do people behave in this fashion? And why is it that in many cases the victims of abuse take so long to tell? You hear stories of accusations that go back 35, 45, 50 years, and think, what's going on there that there's such a delayed response? Well, we get some insights now from Dawn Scott Damon. Dawn has been a guest on the program many times down through the years, the author of a number of best-selling books. She's also pastor at Tribes Church in Rockford, Michigan. She has a new book that will be out in May. It's called When a Woman Abused Was You, 
And um, great to have you with us today, Don. As always, let's talk about this topic. Um, why is it, do you think, in your opinion, that so often um, there is this huge hesitancy that sometimes years go by before a woman is willing to come forward and talk about these experiences? Mm-hmm. Well, it's absolutely true. In fact, um, 60 to 90 percent people will never tell their story that it, it's just so couched in so much shame. Women don't tell, and, and men, they don't tell because perhaps their perpetrator has threatened them, that they've already experienced so much loss already, their self-esteem has been decimated, and now if I tell, I'm going to experience even more loss. But I think we can probably sum it up into one word, and, and that kind of, that word is power, that they are afraid of the powerful person who has just abused them and the ramifications of their talking. Is there a sense of almost um, uh, victimization twice over? And what I mean by that is an individual who goes through a horrific experience like this and then uh, tries to come out on the other side, maybe through a variety of of, uh, less than really ideal or effective coping mechanisms that might run the gambit from shame shame and self-blame to uh, denial, uh, just, you know, thinking that somehow I deserved it, whatever it might be to try and cope or deal with the trauma. And then to want to put it behind you, I think, is a natural reaction, but then to come back and say, oh, wait, now you have to go to the authorities. Now you have to take this public. You have to um, bring your, your perpetrator to, uh, to justice. And then pulling up all those memories, all that experience all over again, almost seems like it, it opens up a door to being victimized twice over. Absolutely true, and we know that some of our laws have recently been changed to support the survivor. And for so many years, any woman who wanted to tell her story had to be prepared with the re-victimization, knowing that she was going to be re-traumatized, having to relive the experience, and then the questioning and the doubt and the um, just not the, the fear of not being believed. So that absolutely was. I think that's probably. Um, Hopefully today in our society there's much more support and um, survivors are believed much more rapidly, uh, which can create some other issues. But I think, um, you know, children don't tell because it's, it's a matter of survival for them. And then once we become adults, we don't tell because we think, I should have said something then and I've wasted too much time has gone by. No one's going to believe me now. And I have children of my own, and I'm not going to disrupt my whole world. And so there's not an incentive. And usually the fact that they haven't told means that they haven't connected probably current lifestyle or uh, struggles, depression, anxiety, and weight issues, so many things. They've not made that connection yet. Those things could and probably are rooted in your sexual assault. Well, and then, too, I have to wonder, Dawn, isn't a big part of this, too, not that there's a lack of of incentive, but in fact, there are multiple disincentives. Number one, oftentimes this abuse takes place um, not in a vacuum of power, but in an imbalance of power. And while we've heard the names, the you know, the celebrities, Bill Cosby, Harvey Weinstein, uh, where this kind of abuse is taking place generally in sort of a, a quote-unquote professional environment or work environment, isn't it true that the overwhelming 
overwhelming number of abuse cases are usually at the hands of a perpetrator who was either a family member or a trusted friend of the family. And so there's a disadvantage or disincentive, rather, to to come forward and be forthright because all of a sudden becomes, well, gee, now if I report this, what's going to happen? Uncle Harry's going to wind up in jail or uh, there's going to be a divorce in the family? I mean, isn't that a big factor here, too? Yes, totally. And it's going to be my fault because uh, I told, I ruined the family. I I gave my mom, you know, this heart grief, this burden. It's all of my fault. Yeah, because we know that um, 90% of abusers are, or, or, or survivors are abused by someone they know. And um, 60% of those are trusted family members. It's interesting, Craig, today I was just reading some articles and I went to Google something and I pulled up a litany of coaches, sports coaches, a female and male, whether it was cheerleading coaches, basketball coaches, hockey coaches, soccer coaches that are abusing. Olympic coaches. Olympic coaches right here in Michigan. In fact, I, I speak and minister to some of the survivors of that Larry Nasser situation right here in Michigan, where I'm from. And so, you know, if I tell, um, I ruin the stellar reputation of this beloved coach. And so there, you're right, there's not a lot of incentive until the first person dares to say something and that's why you see then the deluge often of all of the other voices coming forward because now I'm, I didn't, I wasn't the one that did it, and now I have a responsibility. And, and do many of these perpetrators um, engage in this behavior? I mean, we've, we've heard stories of, of the, the age of the victims, younger and younger, or we hear these outstanding standing or out, outlandish numbers that, oh, there's, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60, over 100 victims. We've seen this predominantly within accusations of uh, abuse within the Roman Catholic Church. The numbers appear to be staggering. Are many of these abusers working on the knowledge that the, 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 the cards, so to speak, are stacked in their favor because of the imbalance of power and uh, the likelihood. Who's going to believe that, you know, dear old Uncle Charlie, how, no, can, this is the guy that gives all the kids money at Christmas. How could you dare say that this is the case, that Reverend Father so-and-so seems to be the nicest guy in the world? Do they take advantage of the knowledge that they know that the power of the cards so to speak, or are stacked in their favor? Yeah, I would. I believe that they do. Of course they do. And, and, and they get, you know, juiced up or intoxicated by that power because if year one goes by, year two, year three, 10, 15 years, and I've never been caught, there's a sense of, you know, I, I, I'm, I, I've got this thing. They're emboldened, and, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're totally emboldened. And also they groom the children that they're going to abuse. They look for that one that looks timid, that's quiet, that's rather shy, and they take them under their wing, and the family loves you for doing this because you're bringing my child uh, out and helping them bloom, and you've got this wonderful relationship. And so the perpetrator, whether, you know, and, and we, we can't negate the fact that women, not as often, but women are abusers as well. You know, it's old uh, Aunt Sally and, and beloved Grandma, and we're hearing more and more stories of that happening as well. But they groom the family first, earn that trust, and that, and then the next thing you know, they're babysitting your children. And if, if an abuser has a mind to abuse, they'll do it right under your nose, right around the campfire. 
it, it's not a difficult thing. Don, we're touching child. on this because, as I mentioned, the month of April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month, uh, and, and we're plumb out of time. We really, you and I, we need an hour together to even begin to develop this topic. So, as we as we wind up our brief time together, um, a word, if you would, of encouragement to particularly women that are on the receiving end of this abuse. Why should they tell, and how should they tell, and where do they find hope and healing? Yes. Well, first of all, help um, telling helps you heal. So you re- you really want to tell someone so that you can get it out of the shadows and out of the secret place and begin to heal. By healing, I mean you develop resilience and you find your voice and you're unlocked from shame and fear and you can grieve and honor your pain and uh, y- your value in who you are comes back in so many ways. Um, get help. Telling doesn't mean reporting to the police. It means it, telling someone, letting another human being hear your story, and then you hear it for the first time often. Um, find a trusted source, and I would recommend for a woman, find a woman that you can talk to. Or if you want to be anonymous, call the National Sex Assault Hotline and um, talk to someone. But whatever you do, you know, when you, Rick Warren always says this, when we swallow our pain, our stomach keeps score your body's going to tell on you. So find that relief and that hope. We appreciate, um, albeit the brevity of our conversation, but spending some time today with Don Scott Damon, uh, again, award-winning author of When a Woman Abused Was You. Um, she's also got a new book out that I mentioned will be released in May called The Freedom Challenge, 60 Days to Untie the Cords that bind you. That'll be out on Redemption Press, and we'll be sure to get Dawn back on for another more elongated conversation. As I say, I almost approach this apologetically today because we're dealing with such a a heavy issue and and able to only devote a little bit of time to it. But we'll 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 make good on that um, later on in uh, when we get into May and the new book is out. Dawn Scott Damon. Information available on the web at dawnscottdamon.com. And again, award winning author and pastor at Tribes Church in Rockford, Michigan. Thank you so much, Dawn, for the time and the insights. All right, uh, 20 after the hour, 18 actually after the hour, almost 20 in two minutes. If I keep talking, we'll be there. Let's get a look at traffic. Michael Bennett, what's up? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. I'm going to terribly date myself uh, with the following reference, but uh, those of you in the audience that were around during majority of the Cold War, or maybe even further back to that, recall a time when any affiliation with the word socialist uh, was deemed to be a, a scarlet letter A. Um, we assign the nastiness of socialism to things like, well, albeit a communist country, but it, everything is in the name, right? The, the USSR, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, um, perhaps one of the most frightening socialist nations, goes back to the 1930s and 40s. That was under the squeeze of the National Socialist German Workers' Party, or Nazi Germany. Socialism historically has not had a very good name to it. So if that be the case, what's with this sudden wave of it being all the rage? Now, uh, we, we know certainly contributory to that has been the likes of Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And I guess at the end of the day, anytime you talk about giving away free stuff, 
it's going to capture somebody's attention in a positive fashion. Let's get some insights. Pastor Sam Rohrer joins us, president of the American Pastors Network. And um, Pastor Rohrer, what's with this? All of a sudden now everybody seems to want to be fashionable by clinging on to the notion that they're socialist. And yet, as I mentioned, historically from my experience, socialism was never anything to want to be bragging about or associated with. Well, no, Craig, you're exactly right. Matter of fact, I mean, as you cited, those two periods of time, um, they actually led this nation into world wars. Uh, we have fought world wars over the ideological distinctions and the differences between freedom, liberty, a representative republic, as we have in this nation and generally uh, the Western world, as compared to those who claim the name socialist, really communist in the cases of Russia and, and then Nazism with, uh, with Hitler, but nonetheless, there are some very common things in relation to that. You ask, why are we here now, and people are accepting this? Well, I think in reality, people don't understand. Many people don't understand what true socialism is. Many of the young people, uh, over 50 percent, theoretically according to many surveys, uh, believe that socialism uh, perhaps is superior to capitalism. Um, you'd say, how can that be? Well, I think it's all tied in directly to our view, or lack thereof, of God. A lot of people don't know that whereas socialism, primarily an economic view of life where government owns everything as compared to um, uh, our nation, capitalism, where there is private property, as the Old Testament calls out, and uh, the ability to defend it and to make a living and to keep what you own and what you earn, uh, very Old Testament, very biblically based. Socialism doesn't have either one of those. But I think, Craig, at the heart of the matter, yes, we don't know economic systems, but really it goes down to the fact that socialism and where it really always ends up in its, in its pure form is communism, uh, where there is everything is owned and freedom disappears completely. That system, socialism and all of its various parts, are atheistic at its core. It rejects the notion of God, God as creator, uh, sin, uh, people uh, as being obviously created, sacred in God's image. Uh, they embrace the concept of uh, evolution, where we don't have a God and we don't have any obligation to anyone. At the heart of it, it does become a theological issue, and it ties back into, is there God? Or is there not? So well, isn't there, there also no a, a degree to which, Pastor Orr, that this appeals to the flesh? And I ask that question because so much of this tends to be when you talk about free health care, free education, free this, free that, it's social welfare on steroids, then a lot of appeals to uh, not only the sense of self, the sense of self-entitlement, uh, but but let's face it, you know, what, what, what more debased thing can you have um, from an entitlement standpoint than the belief that you should get everything for free that somebody else should pay for, and you're deserving just because you are? So isn't there a degree to that that really tends to appeal to the flesh? I think I think absolutely there is. I mean, you know, under a biblical worldview, duty, responsibility, accountability to a higher power, accountability to God are essential elements. That doesn't exist under socialism. And I think it goes to the heart of what you're saying. But again, it comes back to one's view 
of God. And that's where a lot of folks don't understand that that's where that has come from. And in this country, uh, Craig, in this country, the advancement of the socialistic mindset has not been accidental. I, I think that it has uh, it's accompanied a couple of very specific strategies that one can actually probably take back to 1933 when Sigmund Freud in this country invited in uh, what was called the Frankfurt School from Germany, and that Frankfurt School was a was a body of thought, a socialistic body of thought that had wrapped itself around uh, the likes of uh, Karl Marx and uh, Friedrich Nietzsche and uh, and uh, George Hegel, and combined them here and said, we want to the Marxist goal, the socialist goal, to us to attack America from within, and they began back at that point targeting the institutions of the media um, and education goal being to, number one, follow Karl Marx's goal was to dethrone God. we got to pull God down from the pinnacle of importance. Freud says that uh, there was no God, you do whatever you want to do, and he was the father of psychology. Uh, Nietzsche, in his days, uh, made a goal of saying, we've killed a God in the mind of the people, and ultimately that was their goal here to actually effectively say there is no God to be accountable to. Hegel's came along with his um, uh, Hegelian dialectic, they call it. It was the antithesis, antithesis approach of presenting an argument that you didn't really want to get. You tear it down and you go somewhere else and you move people in their thinking. We have been attacked by a very systematic thought pattern by thought leaders, atheistic in their goal, their goal to tear down God from the pinnacle here in America. And I believe that that has happened, that it's been accompanied with silent pulpits. Well, and there is a bit of a bait and switch here, too, isn't there? I mean, listen, at the end of the day, and, and uh, you know, I've often argued, uh, for example, in the case of those who are purveyors of um, uh, evolution, that much of that uh, theory is based more on trying to create an, an evidence um, of, of that God does not exist than answering the question, how did man come to exist? Because if we take God out of the equation, we're no longer accountable for a lot of stuff. I suppose if you try it from a marketing standpoint to say we're going to create a communist utopia, uh, there would have been enough information during the Cold War for you know most people to say, well, no, that doesn't sound very good, and I've heard some bad things about communism. And, and likewise, maybe if you said we're going to build a secular society, uh, that might not uh, be all that palatable either. But if you come in and, and, and dress the pig up, so to speak, uh, with ideals of creating a socialist utopia, who could be against social welfare? How can you object to the notion of free education or free health care? So it, it sounds almost as if there's been a very clever marketing ploy here in sort of a bait and switch, as you're suggesting. Well, I think there has been a bait and switch, and I think uh, the, the common pursuit that many are involved in within the church in America, uh, increasingly, with the term being used, they're saying social justice, they're using, the Marxists have infiltrated much in the church, thrown in the term social justice, and have taken and applied uh, responsibilities, perhaps, to the church uh, that belong to the church, and apply it to government, so the idea that government should be kind to everybody and the government should supply everybody's needs. Well, it's the church as God established it to meet those kinds of needs of people. They've replaced it, again, turning biblical thought upside down, 
and now many giving it a um, a, a, a quasi uh, a spiritual justification, if I could put it that way. And and with that, again, Marx's goal: once you can take and get some spiritual leaders to take and put a moral stamp on that which is atheistic, you have a really deceptive combination. And I think those elements together, you could point to and say those things are happening. What's the antidote? It's faithful preaching from God's Word with a with a defined teaching of a biblical worldview that there is God, there's a Creator God, He created man, there's a fall, there's sin, real live devil, but there's redemption through Jesus Christ. That's a biblical worldview. That taught, that understand, socialism never gets off the ground. And you and I both know uh, from life experience and from history that it's never a good thing when the roles get reversed. By that I mean when all of a sudden the government is doing the job that the, the body of believers should be doing, and, and the church suddenly is acting more like the government. Um, you know, I'm not saying that there shouldn't be times that the church isn't a loud voice when it comes to um, social matters. I mean, certainly... Uh, on the forefront of things like addressing uh, the civil rights, uh, as an example, uh, you know, rightfully so, uh, the, the loudest voice there was the church, and and it should be. And yet, when you begin to see the switching of the roles, um, you know. <laughs> The government is never going to be in a position to do a good job when it comes to executing on things like the Great uh, Commission. I mean, it's just not going to. It's just not going to happen. And uh, I have to laugh. There's a community here in the Bay Area um, whose uh, welcome signs to the town um, characterizes them as quote a compassionate city. And I've, every time I see that, I think, and how exactly did they make that determination? Did they go around and do a house by house survey? Excuse me, are you compassionate? Oh, I'm very compassionate. Good. Mark that down. Fifty one percent of people in this city say they're compassionate, so we'll brand ourselves a compassionate city. Uh, it does come down to standing in the gap to to preach truth and to make sure that our roles don't get reversed, because if that happens, then suddenly the preaching of the gospel is no, no effect. Would you agree? I would absolutely agree, and I think ultimately under socialism, the ultimate role reversal is where man becomes God. Mm and God is pulled down to the level of man, and that's what you're describing. That's the ultimate role reversal, and that, if someone walk away saying socialism, that's where man is God, and God is man. Probably got it summed up pretty well. Yeah, I, th- I think you're absolutely right on that uh, that point. Sam, I appreciate the time today. Gee, I wish we had more. We're diving into all these really hot topics, and, and, and they've got running a stopwatch on me. Uh, Pastor Sam Rohr, president of the American Pastors Network, and uh, we appreciate, as always, uh, Sam's time and insights. Information, by the way, available on the web at AmericanPastorsNetwork.net. 5.34, look at the time on the clock. Guess away when you're talking good. Let's get a look at um, some good talk on traffic. Michael Bennett stands by with the latest from the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Well, the statistics prove it out that with advancements in medical care, we are living longer. In fact, uh, the growing number of centurions in this country will top 20,000 here in 2019. 20,000 people that live in the United States of America that are over the age of 100 years. And many are not just surviving, they're thriving. 
Um, to be sure, there seems to be a shifting of the ages. Um, 75, I'm told, is the new 60, and maybe 40 is the new 20. Uh, certainly uh, lending some hope to those um, women in the audience who have crossed over the 40 mark and sometimes think, oh, dear me, my youth, my looks, my energy is all behind me. It's all downhill from here. Is that necessarily the case, though? Well, I think my next guest is going to suggest, oh, no. In fact, more and more women over the age of 40 are beginning to um, rediscover uh, not only a whole new level of energy in life, but the benefit of time and experience and wisdom um, gives them an opportunity to see things a, a lot more differently. So the big question today as we visit with the editor of The Wonder Years, 40 Women Over the Age of 40 on Aging, Faith, Beauty, and Strength, author Leslie Leland Fields joins us. And uh, Leslie, what about that? Are women discovering that uh, all of a sudden 40 is the new 20? <laughs> well, hello. Hi, Craig. Hi. And, um, you know, I, I hit 40 a while ago. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to um, increase those numbers. I'm, gonna, I, I'm 61, so I can tell you authoritatively that 60 is the new 40 for sure. <laughs> well, I'm, uh, that, that gives uh, much encouragement to my heart as well as I'm heading in that, in that, in that direction very shortly. But it is true, uh, as I allude to, that medical science is allowing us to live longer and live stronger in, in many cases. But this is not just a matter of, of how the body is responding to aging, but there's so much, too, that goes into all of that. And, and I would suspect, as, as many of your contributors to the new book, The Wonder Years, have suggested, um, when you reach 40, there's, there's an opportunity to maybe take some fresh uh, accounting of life, a fresh inventory, and say, you know, um, I've gained some things, I've gathered some skills here in wisdom and experience that I can put to work for me in the future. And so instead of saying it's time to wind down, uh, 40 and beyond can be the opportunity to get set for the next big adventure in life. Oh, I think so, absolutely. You know, 40, I think of 40 as, re as really the pivot point when, um, when women hit 40, and I'm sure this is true for men as well. You, you know, okay, I, I am not young anymore. My youth is behind me, but I'm still, I, I'm still, I'm still young in body, and there's still so much ahead. And I think we just kind of turn around and we look ahead and, um, but some women, there's a sense of, that I think there's fear and there's anxiety. Um, you know, I'm now I'm heading into serious aging, and and what is what is this going to bring? And we know it brings gray hair, and it brings wrinkles, and it brings arthritis, and it brings you know physical physical decline. I think there's a lot of um, a lot of anxiety about that, and and that's one of the reasons that that I I, I wrote this book and and collected these stories and edited them. These are, the years over 40 are the wonder years. I think the second half of life truly is the best half of life. And we've, we, we gain wisdom, we gain experience, our, our skills, our abilities um, deepen. And if, if for many of us, we look back and we realize, man, at 40, I... I was just a baby. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't know that much. Now at sixty, and some women are saying now at seventy, and now at eighty, 
uh, look how much has happened. Look what the Lord has brought into my life. Look at what I've been able to do. So I really want to pass on uh, to women who are in the second half of life just a sense of excitement and a sense of optimism that God has so much more uh, ahead of them. Um, if you know, if if we just open our eyes and and pay attention to His leading. And you know, it's interesting, Leslie, because oftentimes, you know, people who are later on in life, they'll, 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 somebody reaches a milestone and a reporter might say, well, if you had to do it all over again, oh, yes, I'd love to go back and change this, that, and the other thing. Uh, and yet the reality is that there is there are life skills that only come with aging and experience. And I got to tell you, while there are days when I the alarm clock goes off in the morning and I think, oh, I wish I were 20 again, um, there are many aspects of my life where I wouldn't want to go back because that would mean surrendering um, so many of the, the important stages of life that kind of prepares you for the second half of life. I mean, the 20s, I think, are largely about uh, questions and, and searching and discovering and who am I and what am I and where am I headed? We get into the 30s, we begin to develop a greater sense, I think, of, of self-being and awareness and experience gathering. But it's, it's, it's the 40s and beyond where you can take all of those early years and the mistakes that you've made and hopefully learned from and really put that to good use in shaping and molding uh, the second part of your life. And, and maybe we should add, this is not just at 40 or in your 40s, but 40s and beyond. Yes, for sure, for sure. And I, I, I tell you, Craig, there, there are lots of reasons that I, that I wrote this, uh, that I compiled this book, but one of them is that I see women uh, kind of at both ends of the spectrum as they age. I see women um, at one end saying, oh, I'm, you know, my kids are gone now, I've got an empty nest, I've devoted my life to, to raising them and homeschooling them, and, and now they're gone, and, and now, now what do I do? And just a sense of a, a kind of uh, a lack of direction, a lack of purpose, and, and sometimes even for those women who, who didn't work, maybe who stayed home, a sense of, you know, I, what skills do I have to offer anyone? All I've done is raise my children. And immediately I would say, man, you raised kids for 20 years or 25 years. That makes you so so wise and so knowledgeable. You have so much experience to pass on. Well, and you know, it's interesting because we, we've had cases down through the years where, you know, there might be somebody that comes in as a job applicant who's who's re-entering uh, the working world after the empty nest uh, has, has taken over and said, well, my husband's away all day. The kids are now off to college and I don't know what to, to do with myself and I haven't worked in an office in, in over 20 years and I have no experience. And then you find out that they've got two or three or four kids that are in a university or graduate and think, well, wait a minute now. So over the course of that time, you have um, organizational skills, you have um, uh, money management skills that you've gained, you have leadership skills, you have exercised uh, disciplinary skills. There is a whole bevy of experiences that can easily translate into almost any job on the planet that's all drawn from everything that it took to be an effective parent. So, wow, don't look at it as thinking, gee, I've, I've got nothing to offer, when in fact you've got so much to offer. 
Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And I've seen so many women reach that point, that sort of emptiness point, and kind of wander around aimlessly for a little bit and then uh, until um, they really sense God's direction, and, and then they go into the workplace or into ministry. And, and I've seen so many women just suddenly, in their, even in their 50s, 60s, and 70s, who are beginning new ministry, something brand new in, in, in their lives. I just came from um, speaking at a conference, and the conference is organized and run by a couple who are in their 70s. And they are an amazing couple, and they have all of those decades of experience to give. Um, but so, Craig, so I said women at two ends of the spectrum, so that's one end. And then, this is, okay, this is the, this is the other end. The other end of the spectrum is women who reach retirement age, who, who reach their 60s, or even sometimes in their 50s, I've seen it, who say, okay, I'm done. <laughs> I put in my time. I, it, 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 it's my time now. You know, mm-hmm. I raised my kids, or I, I worked, and I'm retired. This, the next few decades are all about me. And you're going to find me at the golf course, and you're going to find me at the spa. Don't ask me to serve in the nursery anymore. Don't ask me. <laughs> that, that kind of attitude, that entitlement. That, and that's kind of the message of the world, that, that as, as we get older, that we earn the right to do as we please and say as we please. We no longer have to be Mrs. Nice Woman. We can just kind of let it rip, whatever whatever we're feeling. And uh, that that is so common, and you'll see that in almost every woman's magazine um, in connection to aging. And, you know, uh, that is so not biblical. <laughs> Well, moreover, I think it also it 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 also suggests a very shallow understanding on life because one of the things that gives I know certainly in my life a sense of of value and that is purpose. Um, I have to get up in the morning and come into the office because there are people that are dependent upon me and I have responsibilities and and things that I must do and so there's there's reason there's purpose. Now you reach retirement and say, okay, that's it, I'm done. I answer to no one but me. And I think after a while, you find out that, you know, the first month or two, it's kind of nice. And then after a season, if there's no reason behind why you exist just to exist, uh, life can be pretty boring all of a sudden and terribly unfulfilling. And so um, getting refired perhaps to, um, you know, sure, not going to the eight to five uh, um, job anymore, but still having a sense of purpose in your life, uh, critically important. And oftentimes it's an opportunity too. and we'll talk about this after the break, an opportunity too to really blossom spiritually. We're visiting today with best-selling author Leslie Leland Fields. She is the editor of a new book called The Wonder Years, 40 Women Over 40 on Aging, Faith, Beauty, and Strength. Uh, many big names that you will recognize um, have contributed to this book, including um, Kay Warren, Johnny Erickson Tata. By the way, good news. We just heard today that Johnny has been released from the hospital after a 14-day stay uh, dealing with pneumonia and some of the side effects from 
um, her recent uh, chemotherapy treatment, and so we continue to, to pray for her. But she is one of several um, contributors to this book, and it's one that I think you'll you'll certainly appreciate no matter where you're at um, as a woman over the age of 40. Okay, a timeout. We'll come back to more of our discussion with best-selling author Leslie Leland Fields. We'll talk about the faith experience after 40, but right now let's talk about your traffic experience after 5.50 at night. Michael Bennett, what's up? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. The Wonder Years, 40 women over 40 on aging, faith, beauty, and strength. And uh, the new book compiled by our guest today, Leslie Leland Fields, is available through uh, Kriegel Publications. You'll find it at our usual suspects out there, Amazon.com. You can also order it through Leslie's website at Leslie Leland Fields with a hyphen between each.com. Leslie hyphen Leland, L-E-Y-L-A-N-D hyphenfields.com. Let's talk about the faith factor here. Um, Boy, like with anything, you grow in experience when it comes to child rearing, marriage relationships, working on the job, and certainly our relationship with Christ. And and especially as you move through this period of time, if you've been a, a believer since uh, you know your your teens or twenties, uh, you've gathered a lot of experience. You've hopefully deepened your relationship to the point now where um, things are pretty solid for you, and hopefully you can do some pretty solid things for the kingdom. Yes, you know, there's a there's a woman in this book named Wynne Couchman who has since passed on, but she wrote this piece in her eighties in her early 80s, and the the title of her essay is The Grace to Be Diminished. And I love this, because as we look toward the the further end of our years, I think we all have fear about that and anxiety about that, of being in our our 80s and 90s. And you mentioned the um, centenarians, who people hit 100 and over. And we look at very elderly people, and we see them as having given up a lot, having lost a lot of physical abilities and sometimes even mental abilities. But when is so, just reminds us so beautifully that aging is a time of giving up, but it's also a time of gaining. And and she writes this essay about giving up things like um, giving up her car keys, you know, giving up driving, and then giving up on Sunday morning, walking up the stairs to the balcony where they usually sat at church. and But toward the end of her essay, she just um, has these really beautiful words. She says, in our early 80s, God is giving us grace to live with those areas in which we are shrinking or becoming frail, for what lies ahead appears closer and more marvelous day by day. And I think she died within a, a year or two of writing her, her beautiful essay. But she reminds us right to the end that, um, that God's Spirit um, meets our spirit and that whatever is lost, He replaces. Do we, also, do we also have to be mindful, Leslie, in the sense that um, 
when a woman has gone through the child rearing years and says, okay, the kids are now off to their, you know, their own lives, their own marriages and what have you. The kids no longer need me. Husband's busy on the job. I feel like he doesn't need me. Reach retirement age and say, well, I'm no longer employed. So the, my, my, my boss, my employer no longer needs me. And so all of a sudden there's this, this tremendous sense of, of emptiness and, and a lack of sense of, of purpose, which I suggested earlier is so critically important at any stage in life. I'm wondering if this is the time where, in particular, um, the opportunity for leadership and mentoring can be so critically important. There was a minister friend of mine um, who passed away a few years ago and at the age of 95, and he had been in, in pulpit ministry for 75 of his 95 years, an amazing man of God with so many stories to tell. And um, annually, I play an interview that I had with him about a year or two before he passed away, just talking about his his time in ministry and his relationship with God through all those years. What a treasure. And I think to myself that so many people, no matter where they're at in that later stage of life, can really prove to be such a tremendous treasure to the rest of us. Absolutely. We need them. We need their wisdom. And um, those of us who are in our 50s, 60s, and 70s, we, we're not done. God has great adventures ahead of us. And some of those adventures, many of those adventures, include turning around and, um, and, and holding out our hands to those coming up behind us to, um, to share our experience, to help young moms um, as, a, as a parent, young children, um, to help our elders to, uh, and, and to listen to what is God calling us to next? One of the most beautiful moments in the, in the last um, few years that I've witnessed is uh, uh, Lucy Shaw, who is now, I believe she's 91. She was um, at our fish camp in Alaska for, for our writing workshop, and she was 88 at the time. And we were having a time of sharing around the room, and it was her turn. She said, you know, I'm 88, and I'm... I'm looking to the Lord. I'm holding my hands open to Him, and I'm saying, Lord, what do you have next for me? What do you have next? And that sort of is the inspiration for this book, because God does have something next for every one of us. We think we're done sometimes at, you know, whatever our age is, and God has something more for us. And all of our life experience um, is a treasure. It's a treasure, and God wants us to spend it well and to spend it lavishly on on all those around us. The book is an opportunity to sort of pull back the curtain on the insights and life experiences of women, 40 of them all told, um, on the topic of life after the age of 40, 40 and beyond. It's a look at the wonder years, 40 women over 40 on aging, faith, beauty, and strength, um, compiled by our guest today, Leslie Leland Fields, who's the editor of the book, again, newly published by Kriegel, and you'll find it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as through Amazon.com, all those usual suspects, and information, too, not only on this book, but other books that Leslie has written. She's worked as a author for many, many years, a professor at Seattle Pacific University, um, also working. Here's here's a, a, a real, what's the word I'm looking for, um, adventuresome individual. Um, how about commercial salmon fishing 
in Alaska, living in Alaska, as we speak. In fact, we'll be looking for that uh, fresh, uh, <laughs> it's just, you know, drop it on to a, a couple of pieces of dry ice. Uh, Leslie, I'm, I'm not finicky. I like a little bit of, little bit of salmon pan-fried, seared a little bit with some champagne on sauce. Oh, don't get me started. Good stuff. Leslie Leland Fields, thanks so much, Leslie, for being with us today. The Wonder Years, 40 women over the age of 40. Lots of great contributors, many names that you'll know. Get the book today. All right, 6 o'clock exactly. Let's get a look at uh, some traffic right now. We'll head over to the KFAX Traffic Center. And Michael Bennett, what's going on out there? Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 